Welcome to Live to Grind. My name is Brennan C. Adams, serial entrepreneur, inventor, TV creator, and speaker, passionate about helping others create something great and become unforgettable. Join me each week to discuss practical ways to help you increase your income and impact as an influencer in your industry. My goal is to help you take your business and lifestyle to the next level. Now let's get started. Welcome back to the Live to Grind podcast show. I'm Bernie C. Adams, and on today's show, we have James Whitaker, the author of Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy, and co-executive producer of the movie Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy. James shares today on the podcast show, for one, a different side that most people don't hear about. He actually owned one of the largest, or the largest CrossFit gym in the world in Australia, and that was kind of one of his first entrepreneur endeavors. He talks about the gym and how he grew it to 400 members and had or has had many influential people there, celebrities and Olympians, just go to that gym and the events they put on and the successes they have had with that. So you can learn about that if you're a gym owner looking to start a gym. And then also we go into how he even came about being the author of Thinking Rich Legacy, how he came about being a part of the team, and the process of him writing this book. I mean, look at Thick and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It sold over 120 million copies. And he's creating a book that is interviewing basically the people of our time. You look at in the book Think and Grow Rich, you have Henry Ford, you have Thomas Edison and Andrew Carnegie, all the influential people of that time. Well, now in this book, you have Barbara Corkin, you have Grant Cardone, you have Lewis Howes, you have Darren Hardy, you have many other influential people in the book, including myself, people that have achieved success in their own way and how you can learn from them, the entrepreneurs of our time. He talks about just what he's learned from all of them. You'll be very fascinated to hear what they all had in common, what they all did to get to where they are. And they all had obstacles along the way. They, they didn't have it handed to them. They found ways to make it happen. And he's going to share that all with you. Then also, he talks about what he learned, what he's learned about himself, and his advice to you after interviewing the most successful entrepreneurs of our time. You're going to love this interview. You're going to love the book. If you haven't got the book yet, go get it. You can go find it on Amazon, Think and Go Rich, The Legacy, and also... James is going to be speaking at Young Entrepreneur Convention. He's a Friday night keynote. If you haven't got your tickets for that event yet, you just go to yeconvention.com. That's April 20th and 21st in Des Moines, Iowa. Exciting to bring James to Iowa. He's never been to Iowa before. But uh, he'll be speaking there Friday night. And also we have many other speakers on Saturday. Jason Calacanis, the guy that turned $100,000 into $100 million. We have John James has been on the podcast show before. Amanda Bolin. David France, and many other individuals speaking. And also we have a pitch competition that you can pitch and win prizes. So that's all happening. You can find out details. Go to yeconvention.com. So let's jump into the show with the one and only James Whitaker. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Live to Grind podcast show. I'm Brendan C. Adams, and on today's show, we have James Whitaker, who is the author of Think and Grow Rich Legacy, co-executive producer of the movie Think and Grow Rich Legacy, and a good friend of mine who's doing some big things and has a very amazing story coming all the way from Australia, mate. 
He's um, he's got the accent. He's got it all, and I'm excited to learn. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. Great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, James and I were actually just hanging out. I've talked about him on the show before, hanging out last week in Austin, and he was even a part of the show, Success in Your City. He'll make an appearance, and uh, we're going to be hanging out at YEC next week. So I can't wait to bring you to Iowa, my own stomping ground. Have you ever been to Iowa? Never. I'm uh, very excited. I can't wait to get there. And I've actually, I seem to have a lot of friends in Iowa, which is a <laughs> stem from my uh, relationship with you, but I'm very excited to get out there and catch up with everyone and meet some new faces too. Well, you're going to know everybody in Iowa by the time we're done with that event. So let's jump in, James. Let's go back. I want to hear first about you and getting into your first entrepreneur endeavor in Australia. What was the first business that you you started or endeavor that you went on and and what did you do let's hear about that well I always had that uh, urge when I was young I just felt like I was a little bit different from everyone else but I I did follow the traditional route where I went to university and then went into the corporate jobs and I was always thinking about different things that I could do but never really followed through with it too much at one stage I was going to have my own consulting company and uh, had my own app company, like creating mobile applications and had all these different things that were going on. But the first real established business that I created and was involved with was called Cross Victorian, which was a gym I uh, created with two very close friends of mine in Brisbane, Australia. And we had very lofty aspirations for it. And we came from very different backgrounds. So uh, Jono was very great at uh, marketing and advertising. And the other guy, Mike, was fantastic at everything to do with CrossFit and, and coaching and had my expertise on the business side. So we had a, a very eclectic mix of skills as opposed to a traditional CrossFit gym that would be a very much the owner operator where the person's coaching all the classes, running all the social media, doing all the accounting and it was very, very different. But we also created a huge space and yeah, it was a it was a fantastic uh, project. It quickly became one of the largest gyms, or certainly by size, it was the largest gym in Australia, and then by membership as well. It was, I think, fourth or fifth largest CrossFit gym in the world, and still going strong today. How many memberships did you have? I think it's above four hundred now. It just took a while for us to reach that point, but as soon as we hit four hundred, we were able to stick to that number pretty uh, pretty closely. What so? What made you want to start a CrossFit gym? Were you always somebody that was active or did you and a couple of buddies see an opportunity? What led you to that business endeavor? Yeah, I actually got a phone call one day from uh, my good friend, Jono, uh, and he said, we're looking at opening a CrossFit gym. Are you in? And at the time I was living in Los Angeles and I just finished wrapping up, uh, finished, I just wrapped up an MBA and I said, yeah, if you want, if you guys want me involved and you see a, a benefit and value that I would bring, then I'm happy to be involved uh, because at the time, John and I also had a, a social media brand called BossFit that was very much aligned with posting content uh, for people in the CrossFit audience. So, yeah, we ended up uh, launching this and, and it all uh, got carried away from there. We had eight metre high murals, these big motivational walls of this pretty iconic graffiti that as soon as people see it, they're like, oh my God, it had uh, Rich Froning, the CrossFit Games champ. So it was very much a, an iconic space that we created. When you started the gym, what was your tactic to recruit people? Obviously, when you start, it's hard to get people into the gym, but once you get people in, it's word of mouth and referrals. What was the number one thing you did to get people into the gym at the beginning of the first year? 
Well, we sort of all defaulted back to our areas of expertise. So Mike would make sure that people have an amazing experience in the gym. Jono would make sure all the content that we put out, uh, that, that all was really on point and really intriguing. And the things that I would control would be more like uh, on the client communication side. So every single email that went out or every single post or newsletter that we would send out to members and prospective members, I really wanted to make sure that was airtight. And that's very much that, that mix that I was talking about earlier about having people from different backgrounds aligning for the one business. And that's what made it very, very successful. And even little things that I don't hear people talk about as much as they should around creating ways to have two-way communication, not just with the members, but also the coaches who are on the, on the front lines as well. Like really, uh, traditionally, a lot of people in CrossFit have really dictated the way that they're, this is my gym, this is the way it's going to be, you need to fall in line if you're going to come into it. But what we wanted to do is talk to people, we wanted to hear from them, what experience did they want? What did our coaches think we could do to improve? And we really just had that mandate of continual improvement. And over time, we were able to have a very successful business that everyone, everyone loved, people just wanted to be part of the community. Even even hosted, you've had Olympians there and hosted different events, correct? Yeah, we've had uh, a whole heap of people. Steve Aoki trained there when he was in Brisbane. We've had sporting teams from all, all over the world. We've had Jesse Williams, the Super Bowl winning uh, NFL player. Damon Kelly, the two-time Olympian. Tia Claire Toomey, the current CrossFit Games champion. And Matt Fraser, the current CrossFit Games champion. Uh, Alethea Boone, Chad McKay. We've had a, a, a whole heap of amazing people, uh, yeah, who have come out to to say hi and test their skills under the roof. So, what what was your social media strategy? Because I know you've done a lot with social media with that business. What was the strategy to be able to attract more people there? And I'm sure it helped that you had celebrities there. But what are some things that you did to attract more more people? It's uh, the celebrity, like the big influencer piece, is certainly a big piece of the puzzle, and we had a we had a big open day where we actually flew people up from Sydney, some very well-known people in CrossFit. And then we had an event called the Torian Pro as well, which has now happened three, uh, three years in a row where we get some of the big, like the biggest names that we can, some huge social media influences, and we get them out to be part of, to be part of the gym and, and part of the community. They participate, uh, you know, for three, four, five days, they coach some of the classes and, that was how we were able to be successful and grow it. But on the social media side specifically, well, yeah, the influencers are great because they help you get your message out there to more people. We found the best things were to find how ordinary people were able to do some pretty cool things themselves and capture that in a very visually inspiring way where people could see what ordinary people were doing and they would want to share that with their friends. That was by far the best social media strategy. So all the videos that went out, all the photos, they were just very, very professional and they were very, very consistent as well. We knew who we were targeting. Of course, we were doing things like promoted posts on Facebook and Instagram, but for the most part, it was just uh, consistent, engaging content from people who were having a really great experience in the gym and, and changing their lives. So you brought in photographers. Did you guys like on a regular basis take pictures of the people making progress, the people that were members and recording them on video and then posting that? We did, but not as much of the before and after photos that you're probably thinking of. You see a lot of other gyms and I think these are great people who do the, 
you know, from someone who might have lost a lot of weight or someone who's put on a lot of muscle, all those things are, are fantastic. But we, we really just made it look like it was a really exciting, fun community to be a part of because the big issue with CrossFit was that people are very intimidated to give it a try. So we wanted to show that we have people of all ages and shapes and sizes under the one roof who are there not competing against each other or competing against a clock, they're competing against themselves. They just want to be better than they were yesterday. And it was a really, it's a really exciting community to be a part of. And when you've got something as authentic as that and electrifying as that, it just spreads like wildfire. And before you know it, your community is, uh, you know, getting pretty big and you need to hire more people. So out of your duration there, what, what was the biggest obstacle during your time at the gym? Biggest obstacle that you had and you had to overcome? Well, any any entrepreneurial venture, as you know all too well, it just you know, add a, it can be simply getting a text message on your phone or an email, and your day can get uh, derailed very very quickly based on what's going on. But one in particular that stands out was when I think it was November, about four months after we'd first opened. So we didn't really have a huge amount of members at that stage. We might have had maybe seventy members, and that was at the start of the Queensland storm season, which in Australia is a very uh, Big, think like these big American hurricanes over here. We they happen these storms multiple times a week and can be very very damaging and leave a lot of debris everywhere. But where the gym was situated, it was halfway down uh, this hill, and a big flood came through. This huge storm had left all this terrain, and before we knew it, the gym started to fill up. So we've got people on site moving weightlifting platforms and getting equipment out and. We uh, realized that we bought a lot of equipment when uh, <laughs> we realized how, how many people you need to help move everything out. But as a result, we had to have the, clo- the gym closed for three or four days while we got big fans to come in and, and air everything out and, and clean everything out and basically restore the gym back to what it was. But uh, members, they sort of, they're understanding when it happens the first time, but the second time, so a week, I think almost to the day, after the first storm hit, a second storm hit. So before we even had a chance to, we oh. thought this was a, a freak storm once in a, maybe once in a, not quite a once in a lifetime event, but maybe once every five or six years. When the next storm hit a week later, if not worse than the first one, that was when members started to get pissed off like, hey, uh, this is your business. We're paying you a certain amount of money a week. At the time, we didn't have any contract memberships. People were paying every week, so people are free to go on, go somewhere else. And if they're paying for a membership for one week and they can't use it for four out of the seven days, they're understandably a bit pissed off. So uh, Jono's dad, my business partner's dad, was able to get on the phone to the council and anyone who's worked with a local council knows how difficult that can be to try and get action and movement to try and fix something. We, we realised there was a blockage underneath the property. so. Uh, the council were able to come and fix all that, which was, it might have taken six months with without Ian managing that process to finally get it sorted. So, But for Jono, Mike and myself, it was a pretty damning realisation that the business that we had worked so hard on to set up and were trying to build, we hadn't been, you know, we weren't in a position to pay ourselves a wage at that point how it could all come crashing down overnight by circumstances outside of your control. That is the that is the tough thing about entrepreneurs and something that people who have a full-time job where you can come home on the weekends and turn your phone off and 
I'd have to worry about it. Uh, it's, it's a, that's the difference between the, the full-time job versus the entrepreneur route. You never know what's going to come out of left field. I think the great lesson there is it, it just keep going because, I mean, at that point you were less than 100 members. What, 20 you said? Uh, I think we, we, yeah, we might have had about 70 or 80 members. Like we were doing okay, but still like we had a lot of expenses that we needed to that we needed to pay off. We were not in a position to be losing members, that's for sure. I mean, less than 100 members and then you kept going. Most people would have thrown in the towel and now 400 members. It, it goes show you can't, when things like that happen, you just got to keep going. And that was obviously something that allowed you, you just kept going and it was a, a big success. So before we wrap up and go into other things, what would be your advice for anybody that's looking to start a gym or is it a gym, your best advice for them to have success in that area of business? I would learn as much as you can about the area and or the, not just the field you're in, but the geographic area. Get as smart as you can about as much as you can and don't look at that as an opportunity to uh, to stagnate. You just need to, before you make such a big leap where you're doing things like signing leases and hiring staff and having to look after members, just understand as much of the business and the industry and the area as you can because the last thing that you want to do is create a business that's half as good as an existing business that's more expensive. Like there is so much to having a business. You just do not want to go into it half-assed. Really get as smart as you can, go all in and surround yourself with people who can make it happen. Good stuff. I think you uh, should apply that to all areas of life. Uh, be around the right people. So I want to jump into, I mean, you're the author of Thinking Rich Legacy. And, and that is a book that just came out. I want to hear about, and also co-executive producer of the movie Thinking Rich Legacy. How did you go from where you were? I mean, before this even happened, before even being an author, how did you even get to that opportunity? Because most people are like, wow, like that's a huge thing. You're taking Napoleon Hill's work and then you're taking this generation of entrepreneurs and basically bringing a new look to everything, to the principles. How did you get this opportunity? What happened? How did you come about this? Yeah, well, I spent 10 years in financial planning back in Australia in the corporate world, and that's what gave me a really strong appreciation for people needing to be passionate about their personal finance because most people ignore it. They just want to sweep it under the rug. But you need to know about uh, personal finance to set up yourself for your parents' retirement. For your, You might have grandparents who need to move into an aged care facility. As you get children, you need to pay for, for their lives and their education and all these different wealth creation and investment strategies, but also insurance in the event that you need to protect yourself from something that could come out of left field. So I always had an appreciation for the role of personal finance and being truly invested in your own personal finance, just how important that is for people. And when I moved over to America, I studied an MBA that was nine months in Boston, three months in Shanghai. That was a pretty amazing, a bit of a a roller coaster year, but a really fun experience. And uh, during that time, that is where I spent five years on a number of entrepreneurial ventures. Had a, a clothing company, the, the CrossFit gym, weightlifting club, social media brand. And although it was very hectic, there were a lot of things happening. You just you learn very, very quickly by doing. And if you fail, that's fine. You just dust yourself up and, and you move on. But the important thing was giving it a go. So then when the opportunity happened where I met Sean, uh, Scott, Karina and Joel 
um, to talk about the project. I was very, very excited because Think and Grow Rich had always been a very important part of my life and I had always been extremely passionate about uh, personal development as a field and just wanting to help people in all areas of their lives, their financial, their physical, their mental health. They knew, well, I think they appreciated the background that I had had, I had a bit of an understanding of and passion for helping people. And I also understood how big they wanted to make this project. The film, Scott has done an amazing job. And of course, everyone else in the team has done an amazing job at bringing this to life. But before anyone could see that, I, I don't know, I just had this feeling about the people they had on board at that point and from my conversations with them that they were going to do something pretty special. And I just wanted to help them in any way I could. I just asked them if they were going to release a book with it and they were just so busy on the day-to-day uh, side with the film that they hadn't really been able to put too much planning around that. So I was able to pitch them a concept. Uh, they said they absolutely loved it and asked if I could do it. And yeah, so I came on, on board the project, I think about the same time you did as, a, as author of the book and co-executive producer of the film. Uh, just, yeah, just trying to help the whole project just bring it to life and, and make it as, as grand as we could so we could get it out there to as many people as we could. And it's something that I, yeah, that I cherish very much. So how many, when you came on, so I came on June of 2016, what part, when did you come on? Was it I, around? I'm not sure, actually. I can't remember the exact. Uh, <laughs> I remember, remember the little things. When you came on, who, who was, who was in the movie at that point? Because over the time span, there was a lot of people that got in. Um, was Rob Dyrdek in, uh, well, actually interviewed already for the film? He was, yes, at that point, I believe so. Okay. Um, because I know Bob Proctor was, I think, one of the first people or the first people interviewed, and more people came on. So, I mean, we got to see as more uh, it, it, the progress that was made for the film and also for the book. And for you, did you, you saw this and you're like, did you just think in your mind, this is something I have to do? What made you want to pitch to them? And what was that moment like for you? I, uh, yeah, I've just been very big on unconditional giving, like just not expecting anything in return. So I was very happy to let them know that if I was in their shoes, this is what I would do with the project on the book side specifically. And and that was to basically, rather than try and rewrite, it's like rewriting the Bible. How can you rewrite Think and Grow Rich? This thing has sold 120 million copies. Yeah. You cannot rewrite it. But what you can do is refresh it for a modern audience and you can interview dozens of people whose lives have been completely transformed by the original Think and Grow Rich. And you can reference modern day people like Sarah Blakely, Oprah Winfrey, Elon Musk, the Navy SEALs, Tom Brady, uh, you can use them as a modern-day replacement for people like Henry Ford and Andrew Carnegie and Thomas Edison, who today's generations just don't really identify as much with. And I also wanted to make sure on the book side that any like it was available for anyone. The last thing that I would ever want is to someone is for someone to pick up the book and put it down because it was over their heads or they just felt stupid when they were reading it because they couldn't understand some of the words. So it was important that it was very uh, easy to read and very inspirational and motivational via the stories that are featured. And, and from the feedback I've received so far, it seems like we hit the nail on the head with that. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. hundred percent. And by the way, if you're listening right now, as soon as this interview is done, 
go and purchase the book. You can get it on Amazon. Where else can they find the book? Yeah, Barnes and Noble, Google Play, uh, pretty much everywhere. It's on. You can yeah on iTunes everywhere. So let, let's go in the process because I I mean saw over a year ago I when you had interviewed me for for the I think it's page one eighty one. Uh, it starts for my chapter on persistence. What was the process like for putting this book together? Because obviously, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of um, expectation for this book because you're interviewing people and and you have the whole Napoleon Hill Foundation behind this. What what was it like to put this book together to make it? And, and it's amazing. I remember reading the manuscript in I don't know, a few days. Like it was amazing. But what what was your process to make this book the success it is? The very first thing was to just really make sure I didn't put too much pressure on myself because if I really, you know, overthinking things can really just bring, can cause paralysis. So I tried to make sure that I was not overthinking it and just focusing on the task at hand because people think, well, writing a book, that is such a monumental achievement. But I tell you what, if you break it down into chapters, we already had the chapters based on the original Think and Grow Rich. That was part of of what I pitched and I think it was really important to remain authentic to that. And then we were just trying to figure out, all right, here are the cast members. Who do we want featured in this book? What are the most special stories? It needs to be a very eclectic mix. So once I was then introduced to these people, I would try and meet up with them in person because you just naturally build rapport um, with people in person rather than over the phone or Skype, which I was happy to do if needed. Someone like Barbara Corcoran, I did over Skype because it was, you know, she lives in New York. And... But before we had those conversations, I would do as much research as possible as I could on these people because the last thing that I would want them to do was think that I was just a, I don't know, that I didn't really care about them and that I hadn't taken the time to ask the question. To, I didn't want to ask them a question that I could easily have found out via Google. So I tried to get as smart as I could about these people so then when I spoke to them, I could let them know that I was being... Uh, very honest and I was very passionate about their stories and I also respected them as professionals through all the research that I had done and I would have a whole list of of questions while I would meet these people and then as you know and then but I would also let it I would let the story flow I didn't want to interrupt too much but it was important also to ask clarifying questions for so I could keep things done chronologically and uh, also have to reach out at times just to make sure there were accuracies there and I would basically record this interview, which might take anywhere between half an hour and four hours, depending on the person. And <laughs> sometimes there were sometimes there were multiple uh, meetings and catch-ups as well, which was great. And then I would transcribe it personally when a lot of other people might have outsourced that. I just felt by transcribing it myself, I'm actually a pretty quick typer, but I uh, would also shape the story as I was transcribing it. And so I would... As I was transcribing it, I would write little notes at the top that I could revisit as, a, as the story started to take shape. And then once that was done, I would finish a first draft and I would sit on it for about for as long as I could, which would normally be about a week because it's very, very difficult to edit your own work. Yeah. And it, yeah, you need to see something with fresh eyes. So after that, I would send it back to an editing friend of mine in Australia who would send back her feedback. So by the time I was done with 25 stories, which was a lot of, I think it was 50,000 words and maybe half a million words in research notes. Like there was a lot of work on this, all in in like a 10-month or 11-month window. And 
as each one was done, I would send it on to to the film guys just to for a bit of feedback and just to let them know that this uh, random Australian who is now part of the project wasn't uh, trying to swindle them. So, and they were very very passionate and very excited with everything that I sent through and didn't really have anything uh, critical. If anything, any feedback was mainly around brainstorming ways that we could just make the project even bigger. So. Once I had those stories all done, it was just trying to figure out how they fit with each principle because each person embodies every single principle. I just tried to figure out how they might line up for, for readability purposes. And after that was done, the, the very last task I did was include a uh, overview or brief refresh of the, the, of the principles in question. For example, the very first one being desire. So trying to think about, well, 2018, how would we talk about desire in a modern context? And that was actually probably the most difficult part of it because it required me to go back and make sure that uh, I had to go and look at what Napoleon Hill had written and the way that he had done it. I had to almost condense it and take the best parts of it, write it to for a modern audience while also being very, very respectful for what he had done. And that was a challenging process. And once that was done, that was the first draft of the book and it was at that point where it gets very, very difficult to, to go back and edit it because it's just so much work has been done. So at that point I handed it over to the, over to the publishers who were, were very happy. They said it was a very clean manuscript, thankfully, and um, yeah, and that was basically the process of, of, of writing the book. Well, out of all of the, so all, 25 people that you interviewed, what, uh, what, what would be the common questions that you ask these individuals? I think one of the main ones would be what I wanted to do. I wanted to find out who they were growing up. So what programming did they have when they were a child and when they were a teenager? So an example of that would be Bob Proctor, who grew up um, during World War II. So he grew up, so they had World War I, the Great Depression, and then World War II. So growing up on the back of that, it's very much the scarcity mindset. Everyone's in survival mode. Their only goal really is to put food on the table. They're not really thinking much bigger than that. So I wanted to find out who these people were, uh, what the big turning point, like what was the big aha, the big light bulb moment that really catapulted them into this next level of extraordinary achievement. I wanted to find out when they first read Think and Grow Rich and was it an immediate impact or was it something that they revisited over time? And for almost every single person, it was something that they revisited over time. I wanted to, a lot of people even said just having the, having the book in front of them that they would just look at the cover. Even just looking at the cover made them feel better and that's actually why I, I do love reading, uh, reading audio, uh, sorry, reading ebooks, but I also like getting the hard cover just so I can have it, something that you can see and that you can touch. But apart from that, also just finding out who the people were who were most influential and most significant in their success uh, what what do they regard as their biggest failures? Um, what do they regard as their biggest achievements? They were probably the main the main questions. So, I mean, and just for everybody listening right now, there's I mean the most influential people of our time in, in this book. So Bob Proctor you mentioned, um, Barbara Corkin, Darren Hardy, uh, Grant Cardone, got John Lee Dumas in the book. I'm also in the book. Many influential individuals who have had their own success. And what I love about the book is you recap about 
the principle, but also you have a story. Each person that tells their story, so it makes it easy for you to relate. And and as a somebody that's reading or listening to the audiobook, which I love, they can find their self in that and then think about in their own way, how can they achieve success? Or hey, because most of them, if you see what you know, a lot of them, they grew up with obstacles. They grew up with disadvantages. They didn't grow up in a wealthy family. They Absolutely. overcame these, these obstacles and they found a way for success, which I love. So for you, of all the people you've interviewed, what are the common trends or themes you find out with these individuals? They Probably the biggest one is unwavering self-belief. All the people in this book, they have this unwavering self-belief. They know exactly what they want. And because they go through life with this piercing idea of who they are and what they want to become, they just naturally attract. People just naturally gravitate towards them and wanting to help. So by doing so, they're, they're able to surround themselves with winners very, very quickly. Also, another big one was these people are not, uh, for the most part, what you would call uh, academics, so to speak. I mean, they're not very, uh, they're not, they're not like PhD level level people. Uh, because, I know I wasn't. <laughs> 1.68 is the book. <laughs> like yeah. an, an example would be Lewis Howe. So he was at college for a couple of years and he dropped out. He didn't even get a college degree. And the big thing for him was he wasn't smart enough to properly evaluate risk. Whereas any other person would have said it would be stupid for him to go and create a podcast show or spend 20 grand or whatever it was on a website or have photographers follow him around getting all these amazing pictures so his personal brand looked very, very professional from day one. A lot of these people weren't smart enough to evaluate risk and in doing so, they acted. They didn't find a way, they didn't find why something couldn't happen, they just acted and by doing so, they opened themselves up to failure and as a result, failure and feedback, that is how they improved very, very quickly because they just tried so many things. So that is another big one. And uh, another important theme is that adversity or misfortune or any type of temporary defeat that these people experienced. And people might think this is like, oh, they had a, a relationship breakdown. I'm talking about like someone who was told they're going to be blind for the rest of their life or they were hit by a truck or like you, they had a lisp when they were young or like John Shin, they were a young immigrant family from Korea and, and moved to this country and were bullied in the schoolyard. and beaten up every day. It really doesn't matter what your adversity is. It's how you transition that into massive success. And all the people in this book and the film just use their adversity as an opportunity to prove to the world just how great they were. These, they yes. And these adversities, these obstacles and failures, I mean, I love that failures are feedback and it is. And I, I think about my journey and I look at all the stories in the book when you have these obstacles, usually you have great success beyond it. And there's always a lesson to be learned. Learn from it. And what was it I saw somewhere? Maybe I just use this all the time. The more failures you have, the more successful you are. You look at some of the most successful people, they failed more times than you and I. They, they had more failures to learn from. And you only have to be right once. And I love the Lewis Howe story. I mean, he was he was broke on his sister's couch and playing football. He got hurt and his whole identity was lost. And then he transitioned into many different things. Eventually the podcasting really just took off and, and Grant Cardona, I think he was when he was my age, when he was broke and he was 
just realized I, I don't think I want to party anymore. And he made the transition. All these people, they had something happen in their life. But you're right that most, I guess, would call smart people or people that have um, sense to not go forward to certain endeavors. Uh, people like us, we're just like, oh, we're just going to do it. And because we do that, we we find great success. And then you find people that are very genius, smart-like. And I think there's even a study on that. They don't have as much success because in the right mind, through risk analysts, they, they realize, well, I don't think that is going to work. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, the Grant Cardone story, because he was from the age of 15 to 25, he was pretty hardcore into drugs. So there he found himself in a treatment center in rehab where people who were the, you know, the experts, the authorities in their field, the people who worked at the rehab center told him that if he is to be successful in his life, he needs to give up his grandiose dreams. And he told them no. He said he was not comfortable being labelled as an addict for the rest of his life. He was firmly of the belief that just because someone had gone down a wrong road, that doesn't mean that they couldn't turn around and go back. And so Grant, like everyone else in here, had this unwavering belief, even when he had an authority in the field telling him, who he should be and who he shouldn't be, he was able to listen to himself. He had that unwavering self-belief and, and look at him now. Self-belief is everything and not listening to all that noise in the background, learning to filter and take in the things that can help you. I mean, you have mentors that give you great advice. Sometimes even mentors, they don't always know what's right for you, but you take in the advice, you take or leave some. And then you have people that try to give you advice or, or just BS that doesn't help you at all. And I think it is as entrepreneurs, we have to have a strong belief in ourselves, and our vision and willingness to never give up until we find success. And, and that's like you said, they all had a belief in their self and their dreams and they thought big, dream big and go after your goals. So I'm curious to hear from you. Talked about the individuals in the book. I'm, I want to hear what were the aha moments for yourself and for you as an individual and as an entrepreneur? What did you learn from learning from all these other entrepreneurs? So much. Yeah, it would be, uh, yeah, we could probably talk for months on everything that I've learned. <laughs> but I suppose from people like Lewis Howes and, and Grant Cardone, the importance of investing in your personal brand. Like if you want to be portrayed as a professional or an authority in your field, you need to really look good. So try and, and you don't need to have all the answers yourself. So you can outsource that. Find a, like we spoke about earlier, find an amazing photographer or partner with someone who can do an amazing website for you. Or don't be afraid to invest money into social media advertising to build your personal brand. From someone like Bob Proctor, I think people are, are really caught up trying to figure out, well, how can I develop that unwavering self-belief? And Bob Proctor says, you don't need to believe it from day one. You just need to understand that you will grow to believe it the more you're exposed to it. So through the process of auto-suggestion and reading something repeatedly out loud and feeling every, associo every associated emotion of having already attained it, that is how Bob Proctor eventually believes that something is possible for him. From Rob Deerdeck, the skateboarder turned business mogul who now has his penthouse office in uh, Beverly Hills, I learned that you should only focus on projects that give you energy when so many people spend, you know, 80% of their time, if not more, working on, on projects that just stress them out and, and make them frazzled, which leads to obviously a downturn in their relationships personally and professionally. 
Uh, that was another really important one. I think uh, also from John Lee Dumas, the importance that you don't need to be born brilliant. Like you and I love people like Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm a huge Gary Vaynerchuk fan, but people can get deterred because they didn't have a lemonade stand when they were five years old. They weren't out hustling on the streets, but you don't need to be. JLD tells us that through his story that you can take control at any point. He was a guy who had returned from, from war and spent a few years trying to figure out who he was, bouncing across all these different industries and realised, I think it was in his early 30s or late 20s, that is when he created the Entrepreneur on Fire brand because he wanted to create valuable daily content for someone through these podcasts. So uh, from Barbara Corcoran from, from Shark Tank, the, the amazing thing from her story is that you actually don't need to have all the answers yourself. You can just surround yourself with people who can make it happen for you. Uh, from Napoleon Hill's grandson, Dr. J.B. Hill, who was a Marine who was, he'd actually lost contact with his grandfather and there's a whole big thing there. It's all actually in the book, but the big thing for him was you don't need to be, or what, what I tried to portray with his story was that you don't need to be on a billboard in Hollywood. Like you don't have to be next level famous to be a success in your life. He is someone who later in life, in his 50s, he actually enrolled in medical school and he is a doctor now and has had some fairly extraordinary things happen as a result of that. So I learned so much from interviewing all these people and and from Brandon, from you as well. Like I, I just love talking to you uh, every time. We've obviously become very close friends now, just the importance of surrounding yourself with the right people. So yeah, there is so much from from all these stories. You could you could pick some a page of the book and I could for hours about it yeah and it's it, i like the mastermind i know barbara talked a lot about that when she realized that i don't have to be the smartest person i just need to surround myself with the smartest people and, and like you and i i mean i know that you're going we're very similar and and after learning more about you your goals are big and you're very and we're both in the same like you just got married it's at your wedding and and i'm looking to get married here soon and and we're on the same path and we both think big and you have to surround yourself with those people. And I, I remember you telling me, can't wait to see where we're at 10 years from now. Uh, because I even mentioned at the event recently that I will be in space in my lifetime. And people think that's crazy, but it's not. And when you surround yourself with people that think the same way, you will find success. And for all of you listening right now, think about who is in your circle and look at them. Are they making you better? Are they pushing you to become stronger and to go after big things? And if not, Maybe you should reevaluate that circle. And if you, when you go and read the book, Think and Rich Legacy, you will see the stories of all these individuals. And I guarantee you, one of them you'll relate with in some way. The first person, Janine Shepard, I was in emotional after reading the, the story. And I actually need to talk to her the next day or two. But Janine, just from how she went from getting hit by a truck. I mean, she was going to be Olympian and hit by a truck and, and then came back and now flying, um, being a pilot and speaking and walking again. All these things, the power of thought, the power of mastermind, the power of just per perseverance and desire, all this is in the book. And I'm excited. Please, everybody, go get the book and, and get a copy. And if you want to, James is going to be at the event in Iowa, Young Entrepreneur Convention here. Next week, April 20th and 21st in Des Moines, Iowa, he'll sign it for you. And uh, I want to hear before we go, buddy, I want to hear from you. What would be your best advice 
for listeners out there for success in their life? What do you tell them to do if they want to fulfill their life and, and find success in their own way? What's your advice to them? Well, there's so much to it. I think one that I really like is that each day, if you do not make the decision to win, you have automatically made the decision to lose because the it's very easy to creep into our comfort zone when we know that all progress exists outside your comfort zone. You need to surround yourself with the people who can make it happen and come up with a plan to achieve it. But the moment that you go back into your comfort zone, back onto cruise control, that's when you uh, default into just getting, it's where nothing really happens. So each day, make the decision to win in all areas of your life, financially, physically, what relationships do you want with your people at work? What relationship do you want with your spouse? Very consciously live with that and come up with your intent for each day. Make the decision to win every single day or you have automatically made the decision to lose. Great advice. Great advice, James. And, and if anybody is looking to hire you as a speaker or have you come speak at an event, you were just speaking at one of my events. You're speaking in Iowa here in a week. Amazing, by the way, everybody listening. Amazing speaker, uh, one of the top five of anybody I've ever listened to and, and had speak at my events. Where can they find you, James? Yeah, the best place is my website, jameswitt.com, J-A-M-E-S-W-H-I-T-T.com. Well, thank you, James. i excited to hang out next week. And for all you listeners out there, you know what time it is. It is time to go out there, create something great, and become unforgettable because life is too short not to. I'm Brendan C. Adams. Have a great day, everyone. So if that doesn't give you enough evidence, I don't know what does. The fact that you need to go get this book, go and check out the book, Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy on Amazon. Purchase it. And if you're able to attend the event next week in Iowa, bring it and get signed by the author, James Whitaker, and and come hang out with us. But that interview, just what I learned from him is from all these people that he's interviewed, and just from what I learned from James is self-belief, believing in yourself even when you don't think you can do something. And that's, I look back in my journey, it's always been believing in myself even before I believed I could do something. Eventually it will come to that, but you have to believe in yourself because if you don't believe in yourself, others won't believe in you. So I hope this podcast show made you think about other ways that you can have success and you can think about other ways to go on your journey towards your goals. Again, get the book, Amazon, Think and Grow The Legacy. I hope to see you next week in Des Moines, Iowa, and we'll hang out and we'll have some fun. So that's all I got for this show. Until next time, y'all, go out there, create something great, and become unforgettable because life is too short not to. I'm Brendan C. Adams. Have a great day, everyone.